Welcome to Time to Pause with your host, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. This podcast shares inspiring and motivating stories from incredible veterinarians and industry professionals as they successfully multitask common career challenges and discuss topics relevant to the veterinary profession. And now, here's Dr. Kodaka. Welcome to another episode of Time to Pause. Today, my guest is Dr. Tierra Price, a recent veterinary graduate from Virginia, Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine, where she served as vice president of her class and vice president of the Women's Veterinary Development Leadership Initiative. She's currently a community medicine veterinarian in Los Angeles, California, but she has a wide variety of veterinary interests, including emergency critical care, surgery, public health, and lab animal medicine. As a veterinary student in 2018, Dr. Price founded Black DVM Network, a community that connects Black veterinary professionals for mentorship and advancing veterinary medicine. This safe space provides educational and networking opportunities for its members, as well as a sense of belonging. Dr. Price's commitment to highlight Black veterinary professionals is directly related to her desire for a mentor she could identify with. In her free time, she loves dancing, yoga, reading, and soaking up the sun. Most importantly, Dr. Price believes we should be able to show up as our entire selves in our career. She hopes to inspire others with her drive, authenticity, and confidence to boldly take on challenges in veterinary medicine. Welcome, Tiara. Thank you for having me today. Thank you so much for coming. I've been looking forward to this interview. I'm so excited to have you on my show because you exemplify many of the attributes this show advocates for people to develop. You not only take advantage of opportunities, but you create them. You push into fear and the unknown. You have a try it, why not attitude, which I absolutely love. And the list goes on and on as we'll learn through this interview. Let's start at the beginning, as the expression goes. I've heard you tell the story, your mother was scared of animals. As an aspiring veterinarian, that must have been difficult. For the audience, can you give a little background to your journey into veterinary medicine? Yeah, sure. So um, my my mom, she was uh, on her bike when she was about 10 years old, she tells me, and she was chased um, down by a dog. So that dog chased her on her bike. She was trying to go as fast as she could, and she could not get away from him. So she ended up getting bitten by that dog um, while she was on her bike. And since then, she has not trusted another dog um, or anything with teeth, so she says. That experience completely ruined her, but somehow I found um, a love for animals. And my dad, he's not um, a big animal lover, but he would take in stray cats. Um, he would let them in our house and we would feed them and things like that. So I did get a little bit of experience, um, experience there. 
but from as long as I can remember, I've wanted to be a veterinarian and I'm not exactly for sure when that that interest came about. Um, I do remember watching Dr. Doolittle a lot. So I, I think that that probably had something to do with it. And I mean, I have photos from as early as first grade um, career day with me dressed up as a veterinarian. And I'm in a white coat and I have um, a, a Dalmatian, a stuffed um, Dalmatian toy in front of me. And I have a tag that says Tierra Price DBM. And awesome. I think that was because the year prior for career day, I, I also tried to be a veterinarian, but um, without the stuffed animal and without the DBM tag, I was mistaken for a physician. Um, so we had, to, we had to, yeah, it's terrible. We had to really up our game the next year so that everyone knew that I was um, dressing up as a veterinarian and not a human doctor. Right. Great. And so you, you followed your aspirations and dreams. And I've heard through some of the, um, my research uh, in preparing for this interview that you had an uncle that was also instrumental in your development of, uh, and pursuit of this career. For sure. So my uncle was a um, worked with animal control so he worked for animal control and back then um i called him and my family called him a dog catcher so i always told people i had an uncle that was a dog catcher and um, he was the one that you know took me to the shelter with him one day introduced me to the shelter staff and um got me you know volunteering in the shelter and so from that point on I was probably about 12 when I started at the local animal shelter. Almost all of my experience, 90% of my veterinary experience um, is in shelter medicine. And so I really grew some strong roots there. Uh, walking dogs, cleaning kennels, um, working with the veterinary care staff, et cetera. Yeah. Well, that's great. We all have cleaned a lot of kennels and <laughs> um, uh, done a lot of grunt work to get where we are today. So, so good for you. I know that you have some insights into some of the impediments people can experience in the application process to veterinary school, which, which may reflect a lack of awareness or perhaps implicit bias. Can you explain why this might be a limiting factor for many minorities? Yeah, for sure. So I think that the, in my opinion, um, and which is not uh, any expert opinion <laughs> by far, but in my opinion, the admissions process to get into veterinary school is very much a bottleneck that selects for a homogenous population of people which is what we see in veterinary medicine. Um, and a couple of the things that I see as being barriers to reaching other people, a diverse <laughs> set of people are, like you said, the admissions requirements for 600 um, animal experience hours, um, the admissions fees, the, uh, the, the grading process, which maybe um, values um, animal experience and uh, veterinary experience over having just a job 
right? So a lot of people will say, well, don't you need that experience to get into vet school? Don't you need that experience to become a better, a, a good veterinarian? And I, I do think it's true, right? I think that you need to not go into veterinary school blind <laughs> about, um, about the profession and what you're getting into. So you at least should have some type of volunteer hours or volunteer experience or work experience that you were paid for. But the excessive numbers are probably not necessary. There's a study that my school did that I can never cite properly, but you know that study shows that people who come in with X amount of hours, you know, over 600, versus those that come in with less than 200 hours of animal experience do not perform much differently than you know their counterparts. So no, no matter how many animal experience hours you have, you seem to go through vet school and be um, just as successful or non-successful as someone who had um, a different number of hours. So that really shows that it seems like a logical thing that the more hours of experience you have, the better you would do in veterinary school, but it's, it's really a myth. And so um, having the requirements for excessive hours is a burden to a lot of people. And so you really select for people that have one, access to veterinary care, which we know is not, um, is not, you know. It's not a universal situation. Not, yeah, the, not I think as Dr. Blackwell's study said, you know, uh, almost uh, a third to 30 to 40%, you know, of right. um, people don't have access to veterinary care. So valid point, yeah. Yeah, so um, so one, you, you would need access to veterinary care to be able to perform those hours. Um, you would probably benefit if you grew up on a farm in a rural area which again selects for a certain type of person, um, someone that grows up on a farm, access to veterinary care, etc. Um, and then also it, it ignores the fact that not everyone has the luxury to volunteer that amount of time. So some people um, have to work during, during that time. Um, they don't have 600 hours to volunteer because they are trying to survive. Yeah. And so I don't think that that, you know, necessarily applies only to minority populations, but I think that it definitely shows how you can select for people that come from the same background, that have the same experiences, um, and that have the same opportunities and luxuries. Yeah, and with this day and age of mental health issues and stress and uh, a variety of things, you know, we are talking about how we've honed in a very um, A-type personality, myself included, unfortunately, bringing diversity in a variety of ways, et cetera, um, would certainly be of value. I appreciate you, you sharing that. I believe during your time at vet school, you started an Instagram page, Black DVM Network, which has continued to grow. But can you tell us how this came about? Yeah, so when I was a second year in veterinary school, I decided, it was actually after my second year had ended, I decided to start um, an Instagram page that I called Black DVM Network. And I had thought about this Instagram page for, you know, a few months, and I was really hoping to just highlight some of the um, Black veterinarians and students 
that were in the profession that I maybe didn't know. And that really stemmed from a lot of um, personal growth and, uh, you know, just seeking out some of the, the issues and the solutions and the, the whys to why I was feeling a certain way in, in veterinary school. So um, when I got to veterinary school, I went to school at Virginia Tech, um, Virginia Maryland College of Veterinary Medicine. And that is located in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is in Southwestern Virginia. So a very rural part of Virginia. And I got there and I made new friends and things were, things were fun and vet school was hard. But what I noticed was that I was exhausted all the time. Even when I, you know, had hung out with my friends and I was supposed to be relaxing, I still felt exhausted. And what I really noticed was that I wasn't really connecting with the people that I was in school with. Um, they were great friends and we had a great time, but at some level I was still, um, putting on a different face to assimilate into their culture, their way of life. And I wasn't really being myself. And when I did try to start being myself, I was asked all of these questions, you know, how'd you get your hair like that? How did, how did you do that? Oh, is that the music that you listen to? Why do you do this? Is that something that black people do? Do all black people do this? And so the questions and the microaggressions were absolutely exhausting. And I had to know, is there someone else? Are there other people in veterinary medicine that look like me that I can relate to? Or am I entering a profession where I won't really have any friends? I won't be able to connect with anyone on my job. You know, will my post-grad life be like this also? So I really just wanted to find really some friends in vet med, um, some people to connect with. And so I started the Instagram page, Black DBM Network, to highlight um, veterinary students and um, veterinarians. And really, like I said, find some friends. And that's what it really turned into. The Instagram page um, was just a social platform for us to cheer each other on, um, highlight accomplishments, encourage each other. But from there, I started to receive a lot of DMs about um, discrimination from, you know, technicians were telling stories of discrimination. Pre-veterinary students were asking questions about how to get into veterinary school. Clients were asking questions about um, black veterinarians in their area. And so um, I, I recognized a large gap in resources for the black veterinary community, um, probably in about a year after the Instagram page started. And that's when um, we decided to develop Black DBM Network out a little bit further. I just want to go back to the point that you make about how valuable community is. Uh, it's important because you're really, whether it's a, a religious community, a professional community, there are a range of different communities. But I think the purpose of a community is to really let your hair down, put your feet up, and have that mental relaxation and, uh, uh, and not have to work so hard at things. And it sounded like, although you connected on um, several levels with your peers, that just that non-work connection really wasn't there and that was the impetus for black dvm network and i think we're at whatever community is important for everyone in vet school and in the field 
getting this level of support is so important, especially for, for, for mental wellness and, and long-term success in, in the career. I love how the Black DVM network has grown to be a powerful resource in the veterinary industry but also to black pet owners and technicians and you name you know some of the aspects you you named earlier can you tell us how this came to be and why it's so popular what what is it satisfying that really wasn't available yeah so um so the first initiative that we did from uh you know popular demand was the Black DVM Network directory. So our directory of Black veterinarians and technicians. And this directory is a client resource for clients to find practicing veterinarians and technicians that they can take their animals to and be seen by. And that was, again, from the large amount of inquiries that I had coming through the Instagram page asking about, you know, where can I find a Black veterinarian in my area? And people have a, a long laundry list of reasons of why they want Black veterinarians. So that was our first initiative. And that map um, is on our website, uh, with BlackDVMNetwork.com. And it shows, you know, over 100 Black veterinarians um, practicing in the United States. I didn't realize it at the time, but that was the first time in veterinary medicine that something like that had been done. So um, our directory is the first ever cultural affinity directory in veterinary medicine. And I didn't know that, but I, I think because it's so common in so many other areas, right? Like you can find, you know, so many buy black sites, black owned businesses, et cetera, in yeah. other industries and veterinary medicine hadn't had that yet. So I think that even using that first initiative as an example, Black DVM Network doesn't try to fit in with the veterinary community. We are trying to do what's best for our members and for our community. And if that means that we take cues from other industries, then we're open to doing that, right? Um, and, and I think that that brings innovation and creativity into veterinary medicine in a way that we've never seen before. And so Black DVM Network has inspired many other groups, Latinx, the Asian Association of Veterinary Medical um, Practitioners, Canadian Vibe is modeled after Black DVM Network. And so we're happy to be paving this way for so many other organizations just by taking a cue from other industries. Yeah, I think it's so valuable. That's one of the reasons why sharing it with veterinary field is, is really one of my missions here of having this conversation today. Another reason is, as you know, my passion is mentoring, actually, and sharing experiences with veterinary grads and the whole industry, to be honest with you, as well as promoting personal growth and empowerment. Mentoring is often multifaceted, involving several people with different areas of specialty along a career or life continuum. In what areas do you feel Black veterinarians and technicians want or need mentorship? And who do you think should play a role in that? So, you know, speaking for myself, I always struggled to find mentors. There were definitely people in the veterinary community that supported me and looked after me, but I had very few mentors um, that I found, you know, leaving undergrad and going into veterinary school. Most of my mentors came into play 
um, while I was in veterinary school. I definitely did not have any mentors as a high schooler or as a pre-veterinary student. So um, I think that it's very hard, and this might just be my experience, but very hard to find a mentor that you really connect with, that really has your best interest in mind, that is open to your ideas and watching you grow. And so I think that um, a lot of a lot of you know black veterinary professionals are locked out of finding mentorship opportunities because people feel like they can't relate to them or because people feel like they can relate to them and in reality they can't and so i think that it's important for um for people to see someone not only that looks like them, but someone that they can relate to that has the same experiences as, as them and can understand why they want to do the things that they want to do, why they want to pursue a certain path or not. And so I think that it's just really important that people be matched up with mentors based on a variety of factors, but also get to know a bunch of people and find out who you really connect with in order to develop a mentoring relationship. And that's what Black DVM Network does. We don't have a formal mentorship program, but we do support organic men mentorship on our website and in the areas that we have discussions. So that if you see someone that's doing something that you're interested in, or you see someone that you think you can relate to that you might want to ask questions, um, you can reach out to them. You have your profile, you have the chat box, um, you have different posts that you can comment on and interact with them and hopefully um, find find someone that uh, is a good match for you. One of the, the roles of mentorship, which I think is often confused, is one can uh, support and empower an individual without them having to run the same course that you did. So I think that sometimes, and I'm, I'm thinking um, specifically on um, a story which I'm going to ask you to relate, which was your advisor slash mentor at undergraduate university. I, I think that mentoring isn't to tell somebody do this, do that, and no, you shouldn't be thinking about this. It really is a way of hearing what an individual is prioritizing and wants to accomplish and being there to ask the questions, to make connections, to keep them motivated, and to problem solve. And so I think that sometimes what happens is that people say, well, I did it this way, this is what you should do. But that path isn't always um, the right way for everybody. And again, would you are, you, are you aware of what story I'm referring to? Yeah, so... I've actually had two types of um, mentors slash advisors that didn't work out so well. My first one was in undergraduate school. I was at the University of Connecticut, which I absolutely loved. And I was in the honors program, which had um, only 7% of my class accepted into the honors program upon admission into the University of Connecticut. So um, students in the honors program, we all lived together our first year, and we had um, a specific set of advisors based on our major. So all of the animal science students in the honors program at UConn had the same advisor. And there were only about eight of us. So 
Um, he was our advisor and we did not have the option to switch advisors because the requirements to graduate with an honors degree were so different than not graduating with an honors degree that um, they had specially trained advisors for the honors program. So I got this advisor. We seemed to click in the beginning. Um, I told him that I wanted to go to veterinary school and he said, okay. After my first semester, I um, received two B's, I think. And he told me that I should reconsider veterinary school. And I was so confused and so I said, uh, probably not, you know, I plan on going to veterinary school. And so my subsequent semesters went pretty well. And then in my junior year, I hit a rough time. And so I ended up having to retake organic chemistry. I had a calculus class. I ended up in a calculus two or three class that I didn't really need. Um, and I struggled in that. And so my advisor at that point became pretty adamant about me having a plan B and not putting you know, all of my eggs in the vet school basket, which I totally understand. That's probably a really good piece of advice because if I didn't get into veterinary school, now what am I going to do? And so he told me that I needed to make a plan B. I refused because I'm a little stubborn, but from that point on, he refused to talk to me about veterinary school. And he continuously told me that I wouldn't be getting, I wouldn't get into veterinary school. My chances were so low that I should really try to pursue another avenue. And so at that point, our relationship became so tense that I was afraid to even ask him for a recommendation because I had no idea what he would write. And again, one of the requirements for the veterinary school admissions process was a recommendation from an advisor. And I couldn't get another advisor because the University of Connecticut prevented me from doing that but I needed a recommendation. And so I, I did end up going with the recommendation from him, but I have no idea what he had written in that recommendation. I will say that that caused so much stress in my last two years of school that I didn't even apply to veterinary school until July of 2015 and the application was due in October. Um, a lot of other people had started much, much earlier in the year, but I was actually contemplating applying to veterinary school that year because I had just about lost half of my confidence that I was even a valuable candidate or a viable candidate to get into veterinary school. So that was my first run in and um, I overcame that and I did get into veterinary school that cycle. Um, and so in my first year of veterinary school, I was given a mentor based on my public health interest. And so my interests at the time were public health and going into um, government work with USDA. So I was paired with someone who worked at the um, state level of, of government. And he told me that I didn't need to be pursuing government right now, that I needed to go into small animal practice, and that government would be here when I got done with that. And that was, you know, most similar to his career path. So um, that's what he was trying to explain to me. And then the other, um, you know, interest that I had was practice ownership or entrepreneurship. And again, he told me that that wasn't something that I needed to, to be worrying about. And if that opportunity presented itself, I could do it, but I really needed to focus on 
small animal medicine. And so of course I heard him and I, you know, internalized it, thought about it, could understand somewhat of why he was saying that. Uh, but the um, USDA Salty Wilson um, scholarship application came out and I decided I'm going to apply for this and I needed three recommendations. And when I asked him for a, rec a recommendation, he again told me that he did not support that decision. Um, and while I was a lovely girl, um, he would not write a recommendation for me to enter into that program because he didn't think that it was best for me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so the, um, the outcome of that was that I, I was a Salty Wilson scholar. I, I did end up receiving that scholarship, but at that point I had had two terrible experiences with mentors. And so I was just about ready to give up on the mentor, the mentor matching programs. <laughs> well, well, that's because you're a salty girl, Tiara. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I think it's, I think it really is um, an understanding of what mentorship is and isn't. And it really should be a way of helping an individual learn about themselves and develop their interests. It's, you know, I don't know whether it comes from the idea of, you know, failure or if something doesn't work out, you know, um, there's something to always learn. One's career path is not a straight line. And I, um, I'm so sorry that you had this type of interaction because if, you know, if you weren't so determined and passionate about being a veterinarian, I could easily see that you might have been swayed numerous times to, to doing something differently. And so I, I think it really is important to connect with somebody who will encourage you be a soundboard. You don't always have to agree. And this attitude of if they don't agree, being so, having so much animosity is, is, um, is really a shame. So I'm sorry about that. Realizing that you're a 2020 graduate, is it silly for me to ask whether you've encountered any periods of overwhelm or veterinary burnout? <laughs> so... I will say that, uh, yes, I've only been practicing veterinary medicine for about three months now, <laughs> but um, I think that that burnout and the feelings of overwhelm don't, don't just come up after you've conferred your degree. Uh, there are a lot of veterinary students that feel that way right now, and they're just trying to get through veterinary school. And I think, honestly, a lot of the burnout and overwhelm that we see in the veterinary profession is probably from people thinking that after veterinary school, things get easier or, you know, a little bit better. And in reality, you still face the same type of struggles or the same um, type of burden. So I, I, will, I will say that definitely in veterinary school, I hit a point where things felt overwhelming. And I, and I wondered if I had chosen the, the correct career path. I knew that I loved the medicine. I knew that I loved what I was doing but I wasn't sure that I fit into this profession, that I would enjoy my day-to-day -day life and build the relationships and connections that um, served me. So, you know, that's where Black DVM Network came from. And so I can definitely say that I felt uh, that overwhelm and, and burnout during that time. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that we don't talk about is 
There's a lot happening. I mean, as a veterinarian trying to run an organization on top of being a new grad um, during COVID, <laughs> during, you know, all of the, the civil unrest and everything that's happening, um, that's overwhelming in itself. And sometimes, um, you know, I have to take a step back from the work that I'm doing and, and give myself a break. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm glad that, that you are. How are you finding, and it's not specific details of the job, but how are you finding your first three months of veterinary practice? Um, is it what you thought, what you anticipated? You know, wh what's going on in your head? Right. So it's definitely been interesting. I don't think that I ever anticipated having a job like what I have now. I've always loved um, shelter medicine and uh, community medicine, but I think that the job that I have now provides a lot of unique opportunities and puts me in contact with a lot of different um, people that I you know, probably wouldn't have otherwise come into contact with. And so it's, um, it's different than what I expected, but really in the most marvelous way because I get to help people. Our services are free and people are so grateful and so appreciative. Um, I definitely see, you know, some really sad cases, but we do, you know, I do what I can to help them and, and that's gratifying. So I definitely think that from what I expected <laughs> post-grad life to be, this is, um, you know, a much, a much better experience. <laughs> I guess well, that's great. That's, that, that is good. So it was all worth it. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, I'm so glad to hear that. I really want this interview to end on a good note. <laughs> um, but no, no, uh, it's a wonderful profession. And, um, you know, most of the time, the people you meet, their, their love and their willingness to do so much for their animals and these animals who just give you those eyes and let you do what you got to do to them. Um, you know, I always recommend people I'm working with and coaching is, you know, every day at the end of every day, just jot down three really, they don't have to be big, any size, so, you know, three things that went well today that really warmed the heart because um, sometimes as time goes on, we can focus on on the negative, the craziness, et cetera. But, um, you know, uh, it's, it, there really is so much uh, reward in this career, um, I feel. And it sounds like you're on the right start as well. Yeah, I'm so excited. And I think that the, that's really great advice um, is to just try to remember the good that's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So as a young veterinarian, what are your professional priorities? And uh, how, how does that intersect work-life balance? How do you plan to take care of yourself to continue to stay passionate about veterinary medicine? Yeah, so my professional priorities are, you know, to um, to keep learning and try to make the best decisions that I can with the information that is accessible to me. Um, so I'm always trying to look things up, make sure that this is still an accepted practice and, um, you know, do things with the best evidence-based medicine I can find. I also have a really... Um, you know, strong passion in 
surgery. So I'm constantly trying to get better um, with my surgical skills uh, as much as I can without, you know, a internship or residency. So those are kind of the things that I am focused on now. And I love meditating. Meditation is one of my favorite practices. I try to do it um, as soon as I wake up. I try to do it before I go to bed. And then sometimes I find myself um, engaging in, I think it's called like active meditation, where if I have to do a task, I really just try to focus only on that task. And, and right. Yeah. My mindfulness. Yeah, exactly. And really make that task, you know, a part of a meditation. So sometimes driving, I'll do that. Um, I, I definitely try to take 10 minutes of the day where I'm not multitasking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now that I say that, that seems pretty sad. I shouldn't be multitasking for um, <laughs> all but 10 minutes of the day, but sometimes that happens. And so just having those practices and knowing how to let be mindful, right? And, and let the mind um, go and accept your thoughts as they come. That really helps me set the reset button or press the reset button throughout the day. So if I have an angry client or if I have um, a case that was, you know, really emotional for me, I'm able to take those few minutes, be mindful, and then press the reset button. I'm able to, you know, identify my emotions and accept them or, you know, um, feel them and then let them go. And so that's something that I really try to practice doing. And it helps me to each day, you know, even every hour sometimes renew my spirit and remember, this is why I'm doing this. This is why this makes me happy. These are the people that I'm helping. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of my um, interviewees and colleagues also mentioned, you know, if you're mindful in an appointment, you know, you're not letting your brain spiral down a rabbit hole from the angry client beforehand, or you're not um, letting it uh, drift off to all the other things, what's for dinner, or some other, um, maybe a bad interaction with a, a technician or another doctor or something like that. And so I think it is good in terms of controlling all these thoughts and rabbit holes that if we don't try to manage, start our life spinning and actually increase tension and, and agitation. And while it sounds like you have practiced meditation, which is awesome, uh, I can never do it in the morning. Uh, I'm one of those people that's like, okay, I just got up. I'm ready to go. I don't want to sit and relax. <laughs> So I can't do it in the morning. I could barely do it. But for the mindfulness, I, I do practice. And I think for the audience, it takes practice being able to accept the emotions. This is where I'm going with this, to being able to recognize the anger or the frustration or the, the, the powerlessness of a situation and to accept it. And so um, uh, that doesn't, however, mean that you can't be mindful in the moment. I think that a nice intermediary step is to also say or have a routine where you, um, okay, you know what, I'm going to unpack this tonight or tomorrow or at the weekend, or I'm going to maybe journal about it, or I'm going to state how I was feeling about this incident. And I think sometimes 
for people who are less practiced, being able to give yourself an allocated time also takes it off of your mind because you know you're going to be able to maybe process it. People need a longer or a slower processing time. But I think it's really awesome that you're able to um, and have honed your skills on being able to just disconnect and process events as, as they go by the fly, which is brilliant. Wow, thank you. So um, hardworking, passionate, willing to try, garner support, mentorship, and resources. These are all of the many qualities you have and you emulate for others. I'm glad that we had the time for this conversation. There are members of the audience that would like to learn more about you, more about the Black DVM Network, or get involved with your community. Where can people find you or connect with you? Yeah, so um, Black DVM Network has a website, which is um, www.blackdvmnetwork.com. And that is where um, we have membership options for Black veterinary professionals. Um, and we also have an opportunity that we're rolling out called affiliate membership. So for non-Black veterinary professionals or for Black non-veterinary professionals, the option for affiliate membership is on the table. And we're always looking for people that we can get feedback from about that. And then we also offer job board postings for uh, clinics or companies that are looking for candidates that you know, are members of Black DVM Network because we are these amazing thought leaders and a vibrant community. So we have job board listings and externship listings that people can post for our members. And we also host um, events that are um, open to the public sometimes. So um, anything that you, you know, questions that you have about those things can be found on our website. Um, and again, that's w www.blackdvmnetwork.com. Um, but you can also find us on any of the social media sites. So Instagram, where we started, uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, if you search Black DVM Network, will come up. And you can always reach out to me, um, Tierra Price, on LinkedIn, or if you have any questions about anything, um, I'm always available. Well, thank you. That sounds great. As we wrap up, my fa final question is always what pearls of wisdom? two or three lessons or ideas would you like to share or emphasize for the listeners? So, you know, one of the things that I like to share with people and um, I like for people to, to try to think about out of all the things, so all the things that we need in this world, um, you know, there's confidence and there's social justice and there's so many things that we could use. And I want to remind people that their ideas no matter how big or small um, you feel like they are, are important and you should pursue those. And there's always enough space for your ideas, um, for your passions and the things that you want to create. Sometimes you have to create that space, but there's always space for it. So just go for it. Don't think that um, anything that you've thought up or created is not important or not um, necessary because it is. Mm -hmm. And that's what you emulate. That's what you did. And that's why the Black veterinary and technician uh, community has such a powerful resource. So we thank you for that. And I thank you for taking the time to pause with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to Time to Pause. Join us next time as we continue the conversation with industry leader, Dr. Kimberly Kodaka. Make it a great day.